Hi everyone, Steve Shepard here. Not long ago, Sabina and I went to see the movie Yesterday. If you haven't seen it, you should. Uh, if you like the Beatles, you'll absolutely love it. Anyway, a few of our friends told us to be sure and sit through the credits, which we did, and we were rewarded with a few musical Easter eggs. Anyway, as we sat there waiting for the next surprise buried in the credits, I found myself reading the credits. Why do they need a wrangler? What's a best boy? Is there a worst boy? And what about all those abbreviations? A-C-E, ASCAP, A-D-R. And why do they need a gaffer? Were there fish involved? And what about a grip? What are they gripping? Well, over the last 20 years or so, I've had the pleasure to do a lot of work in the movie world, and I even have a few talent, scriptwriter, technical director, audio engineer, aerial footage, sound engineer, and still photographer credits to my name. So I know what a lot of these things mean, but I also know that there are plenty more that I don't know, and I'm not alone. So I thought it might be nice to do an episode about movie credits and how to read them. I thought about hopping on Google and looking up the job descriptions for all those titles, but that seemed like an awful lot of work. And that was when I had one of those rare flashes of brilliance. Believe me, I don't get them often, but this one was a doozy. When I was in high school, my best friend was Bob Verlack. I called him Roby. We shared a passion for Spanish food, flamenco, and classical guitar. In fact, we took lessons from the same professor. We liked art. We liked history. Every day on the way home from school... We would go to a little bar in the town that we lived in outside of Madrid to eat boquerones, which are pickled anchovies, patatas bravas, which are those amazing potatoes with this incredible gravy, and garlic mushrooms, champiñones arajillo, these incredible mushrooms flavored with garlic and hot pepper. Our moms used to beg us to go to the bar and drink alcohol instead of eat the food because we just reeked when we got home, but Pepsi was good enough for us. Then we'd go to one of our houses and play guitar for hours. Anyway, Bob's a really interesting guy. He was born in North Africa in Tunis. He grew up in Rome and Madrid. He speaks multiple languages with absolute fluency, and he's one of those people who can take on the culture of wherever he is and just disappear into the crowd. He was and is the most accepting and worldly person I know, not to mention one of the most interesting. Now, Bob's an actor. That's what he does for a living, and he's a good one. He's been in all kinds of movies and shows. I randomly see him at least once a month while clicking through channels in hotel rooms. Anyway, nearly 50 years later, we're still close friends, and last week, while I was working in Toronto, we had dinner. And since no one I know can speak to the movie business like he can, I asked Bob to walk us through the credits, sort of a who-does-what-to-who sort of a tour. I also asked him to start by telling us a little bit about himself. Here's Bob. I, I'm an actor primarily. I, I mean, I started acting in high school and I loved it. I, my first play was in Oliver. I was uh, played one of the kids that wants more food. And I remember my mom always used to tell me years later, she says, I'll never forget the day that you came home. You were in sixth grade after your first rehearsal and you came up to me and says, Mother, I'm going to grow up to become an actor. Okay, I have to interrupt here for just a minute. One day when we were teenagers, we were hanging out at my house, and Bob decided to play a trick on his mom. He called her and, in absolutely fluent Spanish, presented himself as a coffin salesman looking for customers. This was completely off the top of his head. I remember him describing it as being a lovely shade of gray as his mom fumbled on the other end with what had to be the earliest telemarketing call ever made. So, yeah, he's been an actor forever. And she reminded me of that shortly before she passed away. And it's like she keep she would tell me that every 10 years, you know, and I was like, 
and she also every 10 years would say, well, wh- why don't you get a real job? So, but I've been an actor for as long as I can remember. And it's like, I did, I did a lot of theater in high school and then I went to college and I realized halfway through that I wasn't going to be a good doctor and that I should probably get a Nobel Peace Prize for medicine for the amount of lives that I've saved by not becoming a doctor. And then, <laughs> and so after that, I decided I was going to become an actor. I went, I auditioned and got in, it was accepted by the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York. And I did their program. I graduated. I got some nice scholarships and some awards. And then I just started working as an actor. In later years, I've gotten into, I've done a lot of directing and a lot of writing, plays, screenplays, that sort of thing. I love it. I've been doing it for a long time now. Uh, my daughter's an actress. My wife was an actress, but she retired years ago to raise a family. And But uh, I don't know. I've, it's A friend of mine says, you know, it's, it's a difficult way of life, but it's it's a great way of life. But I do. I love acting. I just every and after all these years, I still find so much. There's so much joy and so much fun in it. Okay, so many titles, so little time. So like I said, I asked Bob to walk us through the various roles and responsibilities that take a script and turn it into a movie. Because he has formal education in theater arts, as well as many years of experience in front of the camera, his knowledge runs deep and goes far beyond an academic perspective. He covers the waterfront from the production assistant all the way up to the most senior studio executive. Now, I think most people would start a podcast on this title with the most visible title in the credits, like the director or the producer. But I'm going to start by asking Bob about the hardest working person on the set, the production assistant or the PA. It's probably the lowest paid person on the set, but they have a really hard job. They're usually on set the longest. They get the dirty jobs, you know, of run this hot coffee over to the star, uh, bring this over there. You know, I need to I need somebody to take this envelope to so and so and and. It's a rough job. Also, you'll see them a lot on location shoots, like at, at the sidewalk, making sure the passersby don't walk through the shot. A lot of people start out as PAs to learn the business, the, tech, the, the, tech, the technology, the, 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 the verbiage, the rules, the hierarchy, all of that kind of stuff. And a lot of them do progress, and some end up more on the production side, some more creative. It's, it's a great way to learn the business, but, you know, it's, it's, not, it's a rough job. So, no PA, pretty much no movie. All right, let's talk directors. Uh, the director's just, he's like the general of an army. He's hes calling all the creative shots. He's going to be responsible for bringing the screenplay to life. He's going to be responsible for hiring his team of cinematographers, directors, the actors, the um, the location. I mean, ultimately, he is the the final decision maker about what set we're going to be on, where we're doing this, where we're doing that. Some directors have final cut approval where they are, they get the final cut of the, the movie where oftentimes the studio or the executive producer can come in and recut it. That's not uncommon. But some people like Martin Scorsese, for example, would get final cut, um, whereas a new director may not. The director then has, in the actual the actual production, there's a, the first AD, the first assistant director is on set. And it's like the, he's like this, this second hand to the director. And so the first AD will be responsible for keeping the schedule. And let's say that in a certain day, they have to get coverage. Coverage is a certain amount of, of script that has to be filmed on that day. 
which becomes very important with TV because they have to keep to a very certain schedule in order to make the half hour show or the full hour show. And they have only so many days to shoot it. It's budgeted that way. And so every day you have to meet your your quota. You have to meet your pages, basically. And so the first AD is responsible for making sure that everybody's still on schedule, that we're getting our coverage. He also will be involved in uh, working with the background, like getting them in, in, in the background actors in terms of getting them positioned. He's basically running the set where the director is more involved with the creative side of it, where the first AD is kind of like the floor manager of, I mean, I'm simplifying this. And so that's, that'll be the first AD's job. I worked with a, a fellow recently on, on one of the Star Trek things and he shows up every day with a shirt and tie. Nobody else does. And he's efficient and warm and funny. And this one particular day, we were working with 80 kid extras, all made up with the Romulan ears. And there are 80 kids in various stages of makeup and costumes. And he basically had to be in charge of keeping them all coordinated while the director is setting up all the acting and the stuff. And the, the, most of the time, the director will actually work with the individual actors in terms of giving them direction, what they're looking for in the scene. Sometimes, depending on how busy the director is, sometimes the first AD will be passing on the notes. But mostly, the director will work with the actors directly. The second AD, you don't often see on set. The second AD is much more almost like office management. They're making sure that the schedules get produced. They're making sure that the uh, all the actors have been getting the proper sides. They're making sure that transport has been arranged for the actors. Uh, it's more of a, they're more office oriented. They're, they are at the shoot, usually in a trailer, but they're much more the paperwork side of it. The third AD is usually involved with the, the talent, getting the talent in their trailers. They're getting the talent, making sure that they're getting to makeup, getting to costumes on time. They're getting the marching orders from the second and first ADs. Well, we need Bob on set. So the third AD will come and knock on my door, get me to make sure I'm in makeup and costume, and then pass me off to a production assistant who will then take me to the set. Okay, but... What about the DP, the director of photography? That one always seems to be called out separately. The camera operator is the guy that actually runs the camera, okay? The DP and or the cinematographer, they're sort of interchangeable, is responsible for the shot and the look, but primarily the lighting, because the lighting is going to give it a, a mood, it's going to give it a feeling, an emotion, um, the director of photography, the cinematographer, the easiest one I can pin out, pick out is like in The Godfather. That look was so specific to that movie, whereas you get something like um, Fargo, if you remember the movie Fargo, that was north, cold, blue. That's all in the, the purview of the DP the, the, and the cinematographer. And the idea is that they're creating a color palette, a template, but it's it's part of the story. Some of the brilliant directors of photography, if you think about the the film noir, like all those old bill, the black and white film noirs of like Orson Welles and The Third Man or uh, any of those Robert Mitchum movies, you know, from the 50s, the Kirk Douglas movies, that all that black and white. And, and it's actually harder to shoot in black and white than it is in, co in color 
because the color palette is white and black and grays and gradations of that that are very subtle. And so you're not going to see a red shirt. Red won't translate as red. So you have to find the color that's going to look like something Lana Turner would be wearing that doesn't look like a shroud or anything like that. Okay, Bob, one title that seems to come up a lot is the casting director. Can you walk us through that one? The casting director was pretty much showed up after the Second World War, as did agents. The cast, in the old days, you used to be able to, the actors used to do rounds. Okay, you had in film, in the film business, you had the studio system, so the actors were all under contract, they knew all the actors. And in, in theater, you would, the actors would once or twice a month do the rounds. So what they did is they went to, oh, there was no casting directors, they just went to the producing offices, and they would knock on the door and say, hey Sal, how's it going? What do you got? What do you got coming in? He says, I got nothing for you this week, come in next week, Bob, I'm going to have you read for uh, this, you got a good part in here, we need somebody to play this part, and we'll have you come and read for the director. That's the way it was done. It was a much smaller industry. It was a much smaller pool of actors. Well, when when the acting pool got bigger, the business got bigger, the directors and the producers didn't have time to go and do all this, so they hired a casting director. So basically what this was was somebody who knew actors and would bring in actors that they thought were right for a certain role. And uh, uh, you had a lot of the, the great casting directors from the 70s, like Shirley Rich, Bonnie Finnegan, Bonnie Timmerman, a lot of them are still around, some of them now long gone. And their job is to bring in the best actors they can for any role. And a lot of it is based on gut instinct. A lot of the time, uh, what they're going to do, and it, it's really about a scheduling thing. They'll, the casting director now is going to contact or get submissions from agents, and then they'll go through all of these submissions and they'll pick the actors that they think are right to fulfill the demands of the role. The really great casting directors are able to, even if it doesn't make sense on paper to bring in an actor that they can, they think would be a great idea for this part, even if it's not written that way. But they're basically enjoined in becoming aware of the acting pool. And now they've gotten to the point where now they can actually be involved in negotiations between the actor, the agent, and the producer. So they've, they've become a much more important part of the business. Um, in the old days, they were thought of as a secretary until they had some, some casting directors who started to show up and have a talent for finding the right actors and knowing that, oh my God, they had an off day, bring them back, I guarantee you they're going to be able to do this. It's how Dustin Hoffman got cast because, because of his size and he was a certain type when leading men in the early 60s were not looking like Dustin Hoffman. And there were various casting directors that knew he was a terrific actor. And they were able to talk to directors and you got to see this guy. You, know, you got to see this kid. Al Pacino, you got to see this kid for The Godfather. You got to see Gene Hackman, who wasn't your traditional, you know, Ed Harris, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, there's any number of casting directors like that who discovered talents that nobody knew about and were able to bring them in and suddenly in the next thing you know. It's a tricky job. And they end up having people in mind. Uh, now there's so many agents, so many managers pushing so many actors. But like anything, the cream rises to the, to the top. And their job is to, is to find the good actors. And the, the thing is, is being a good actor means not just being talented, but being professional, showing up on time, being respectful, being flexible, working with direction, 
all of which goes into the audition. It's just not coming in and looking like the superstar. You got to be able to do all that stuff. And the casting director wants the actor to be good, not only because they want them to get the job, but that also makes them look good to the director and the producer for the next job. So it's, it's a very collaborative business. And it's, you know, this idea of stars and stuff is, is tricky because it really is about, okay, if I'm doing my job, then that makes you look good too. You know, it's, it's mutually inclusive. Okay. How about the producer? Is it my imagination or are there a lot of them involved in any given movie? Oh boy. Uh, produce, there's all kinds of producers and it, it depends now. I mean, you have executive producers, you have assistant producers, you have line producers. They all have various functions. It used to be easy in the old days. There was one producer, like Daryl Zanuck was the producer, okay? And he was it, okay? And now what's happened, because the pictures have gotten bigger, there's more and more fingers in the pie. A producer is anybody who is involved with actually putting the project together, hiring the appropriate people, you know, all of this sort of thing. Uh, they're working with the fundraising. Where's the money coming from? You can have executive producers that are not attached to the studio. You can have executive producers that are part of the studio that's producing the film. They're involved with contracts. They're involved with negotiations. They're involved with hiring the designers. It's more the business side of it. What's happened now is that a lot of stars start their own companies. And so you have companies like Bad Robot or you have Plan B is Brad Pitt's production company because he wanted a plan B instead of his A plan as an actor didn't plan out. And what he's doing now, he's acting less and becoming more of a producer. George Clooney has a production arm. Danny DeVito has a production arm. And what they do is they set up a producing company that now buys scripts that they can act in. And then once they start making money, they now can be part of the producing team a lot of the times the stars can negotiate an executive producer credit as part of the package. So now, for example, in Homeland, you'll see Claire Danes is listed as an executive producer. But any of those where, where you have you have suddenly the star becomes now a financial partner. So in, they'll also make on the back end, they'll start making the income after the actor salary. They're doing the business end of things. What's happening more and more, we were sort of talking about this over dinner, is that a lot of the times when it comes to casting decisions, a lot of times the studio executives will now have a say in the casting because they want to make sure that whatever the casting is, is going to help in terms of marketing the film. So a lot of the times the actor will be cast because they have a following or they don't have a following. Like they, you know, a lot of the times there's, there can be creative differences between the director, what the director is going for and what the business marketing plan of the studio or of the executive producers is in terms of what they want in order to sell the film. So it, there's varying different levels. Line producers are more involved with the actual running of the production, lining up all the locations. They do all the, the real back office type of work, um, hiring all the trades, hiring all, you know, scheduling all. It, it's a, it's a difficult job, but it has to be done. One of the things I've noticed is that more and more, there are what appear to be credits at the beginning of the movie. So I asked Bob what those are all about. 
if you watch a film that has a lot of times in the beginning, you'll see all of the before the movie starts and before you even see footage, you'll have all of those five second blasts of a company and another company and another company. So a lot of the times now, anybody that's investing movie has a company with a logo that they're going to blast in the beginning. I was watching something the other day. I can't remember what it was, but there were almost nine or ten of these little five-second blurbs that would show up because that many people were involved in the financing. It's not just 20th Century Fox. It's this independent company, that independent company, this independent company. And now because there's international financing, there's that movie that Matt Damon made in China about the Great Wall of China. Well, there was so many. If you look at the credits and all the producers are all Chinese entities and companies. And it's like, you, you remember the old, like the 20th century fuck, da, 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 da. Well, in the old days, that was the studio. They were the producer. And that was it. But now, especially with all the diversification that's happening, like Netflix might be a producer, but they could be buying a show that was created in Germany that has French backing and Italian backing. And they have three Turkish actors in it that got money from the Turkish government but it's being shot in Ireland, so Ireland is getting a credit. And that's why a lot of times it takes forever for the movie to start. <laughs> One of the things that I always wondered about was the various units involved in the production of a film, first unit, second unit, and so on. I always assumed that the first unit did all the shooting where most of the film takes place, and the second unit shoots all the other locations, and I was wrong. First unit is all the main action with all the actors. Second unit is... If they need to see a car uh, going through the Scottish countryside, the second unit will go and film that. It's a second unit with a second unit director and a whole team and crew, much like you would have for the first unit. But they're only doing like the exterior shots. They could be doing the, the airplane landing at the airport shot. They could be doing wild horses, uh, Mustangs on a prairie shot. It doesn't involve the actors. This is sometimes called B-roll, by the way. All the background stuff that seamlessly ties the movie together. I know three different reasons why they call it B-roll. I don't know which one's right, but sometimes people say it's B-roll because it's not A-roll, which would be the footage that involves actors, or the B stands for beauty, or the B stands for background, whatever. And then there are all those titles that go flashing by in a blur. Dialogue coach, gaffer, grip, and so on. Pretty obtuse names. For this one, we sort of went into a lightning round. So, Bob, here we go. Best boy. It's anybody who's like a chief assistant to anything. And it could be of any department. And it comes from, it's it's a sailing term. It's from a sailing cruise. And it's like, it's to get the best boy in here that could do it. But it's basically an oversight of all the other workers in any. So you get the best boy could be from the lighting department. It could be from... Uh, locations it could be it's usually an overseer but not necessarily i mean again it's a flexible it's a flexible term boom operator so oftentimes uh on a set on a set you'll have the the a body mic on the actor but then they also want to have a boom overhead because it gives it a different vo a different sound quality and tangential to that at the end of every shoot there's always a, a room tone that gets recorded so at the end of the day, once all the once they've gotten all the footage, they usually record a, a minute of basically room sound. And it's all the actors, the whole crew, 
not saying anything, just in the in the room, breathing regular sounds, which then that they can go and take that minute and they can replicate it and put it behind the scenes so it standardizes the background. Camera loader. Now the camera loader is usually the one that does the uh, the, the the slap shot, like the um, the storyboard, like the marker. Like in the old days, it'd be mark, and you'd hear the. Well, now then, you don't hear the mark anymore. It's all digital. That's pretty much who the camera loader is. It refers to back in the old days when they actually were using real film, and they would have somebody who would take the the spool of film and load it onto the camera. Now, since everything's done digitally. It's now it's a chip, you know, and it's technically the same thing. It's a lot faster to do, but it's it's sort of it's not it's not that it's an archaic term. It's just the technology is so different now. Some directors still shoot in Panavision or, or in the old film stock, in which case you still need a camera loader. Dialogue coach. A dialogue coach usually has to do with uh, if there's an accent involved, and it's not just the accent; it's the rhythm. In the music, like uh, uh, I don't know if you know the show Ozark, which happens in the Ozarks, and and uh, there's a whole storyline um, that involves some native Ozark residents. There's a very particular sound to that, you know, where you have to have somebody who's able to really nail that accent. You can't just do a generic Southern accent because no matter where it is, it's, there's a very particular sound. Alabama is different than Mississippi. There's different than Florida. There's different than Georgia. You know, much like Vermont and Maine are not the same sound. Just like North Dakota is not the same as Michigan. And so you sort of need a dialogue coach to sort of figure that out. Gaffer. So the gaffer is usually the electrician. And so, and the, the whole gaff tape comes from the fact that they would use that certain kind of tape to tape up all the, the cables and all that kind of stuff. So they're responsible for basically running all the electrics. So if it's for the, for basically for the lighting. Um, and so if you ever are on a movie set, you see all those cables running out and that they have junction boxes and they have transformers and they have generators and backup generators. And it's, it's a big job. Grip. Well, grip is anybody just think in terms of grip, picking something up and carrying it over there. That's the grip. So you can have, you can have a regular grip that moves sandbags around. You can have a grip bringing in the apple boxes to put the short actor on, okay? The key grip would be this, the person who's in charge of the other grips. So chances are the AD would probably tell the gaffer to tell the key grip to tell the grip to bring a junction box. Foley artist. It's named after Jack Foley, who was one of the first um, sound effects guys. So what it is, Foley is sound effects. Um if you know uh, uh, Garrison Keillor, when he was doing Prairie Home Companion, like his stage shows, there was always the sound effects guy off to the side. It, it started back in radio when you had like the Lone Ranger and you had all those detective stories. And it's the creaking door. It's the coconuts for the horses. Right. Um, and they're really it's really it, what ordinarily you would think would be the footsteps doesn't translate as footsteps like Walking on gravel, if you walk on gravel, it doesn't sound like you're walking on gravel. So they usually uh, have somebody with shoes on their hands on cornflakes. And so it's finding the product that makes the sound sound like what we think it sounds like. The earliest Foley was in Shakespeare when he wondered, wanted thunder 
and he had a metal sheet. And so somebody backstage would shake the rump, the sheet. And there's still like in theater before there was technology, there was always the thunder sheet that one of the backstage people would rattle when it's time, like in King Lear for the storm, they would have them back there going. And so as you go forward, I mean, the height of all that sound effect stuff was the radio age. But now they're the ones that when they go back, They'll record a lot of stuff live, but there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't translate live. So they have to go back and put in the sound effect. And these guys are geniuses. They are masters, you know, whether it's a, 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 a wind or a breath or whatever it is. It could be just, you know, a door handle or a click or and sometimes it's so subtle. If it's done correctly, you're not even aware that it's happening. And it's all been put in in post-production. Location scout. When they have a movie in mind, they'll. They, it's probably the script is written with certain places in mind. Like, let's say the Empire State Building, for example. So the location scout, I mean, if he didn't know the Empire State Building, he'd still have to go to the Empire State Building and check it out. You know, check out not just the building, but how do we get in? How do we shoot on the side streets? How is this going to work? ADR. ADR is for additional dialogue recording. And oftentimes I've done them. Uh, I did one. Um, <laughs> I was doing a movie, a Dracula movie that Christopher Plummer was in and, and uh, um, Omar Epps was in it and Johnny Lee Miller. And um, we did this thing where Dracula ends up chewing out my neck. And before that happens, they wanted to scream. Okay. Well, we did it. 150 takes until I was hoarse. And then the, we, 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 the movie wraps, and about two months later, I get a call to do an ADR. And they needed two lines of dialogue that got somehow lost when they were developing the film because we were shooting it on film. But then they also lost the scream. So I went into a sound studio, and what you do is you put on a set of headphones, and then they replay the scene that they need the line redone in for example and the key it's a challenge because you have to try to match the same emotional content and the rhythm of the word because your lips are moving so you have to try to sync with that same rhythm and the same emotional content that the rest of the scene is so a lot of times you'll watch the scene a couple of times and then you'll do several takes until we get it pretty close and then i had to do the scream <laughs> And it was just, it was, uh, we did like three or four takes and I said, I hope you get this because this is, <laughs> but that's the ADR. On that one, actually, Christopher Plummer was after me and he had to do almost all of his, uh, the, he lost, I think he had like 20 pages to do because for whatever reason, there was background noise or a jet went by and they didn't notice it at the time and stuff like that where part of the line gets chewed up. It happens often. Also, sometimes what they'll do is like after the fact, they may realize they need a line of dialogue to help the plot move along that they didn't realize until they, until they start putting the edit together and they realize we need to clear something up. And so often what it'll be is like it, they'll be shooting a profile shot of the actor where you see their jaw moving, but you're not going to see the lips. So we can put in a line that clear up, clears up a plot point or furthers the plot without having to actually match it to the lip movement. Wrangler. You can have a kid wrangler. It's the person in charge of getting the kids all rounded up for the kids that have to be in the shot. 
okay? Usually it refers to animals. I played a bad guy on <laughs> uh, this kid's show years ago playing this evil scientist, and they had lots of white bunnies. And so there was the guy who brought the bunnies, but then there's the bunny wrangler. And it was hard to take his job seriously because I'm supposed to be this evil scientist surrounded by a hundred white bunnies. Well, somebody's responsible for wrangling those bunnies. <laughs> and sometimes you have, it's, you know, it's, you have to take the job with a grain of salt, but <laughs> as the actor, you know, but you can have a wrangler that could be, you know, a snake wrangler, a dog wrangler, a parrot wrangler. It's usually involved with, animals of some kind <laughs> and small children. <laughs> now, at this point, Bob reminded me that there's one other title that is second only to the production assistant on set in terms of their importance, and that's craft services. Those are the people that provide the food. If you have a great craft service, you'll have a great movie. If the food ain't there, people get really grumpy. <laughs> and I've... I've worked with a lot of stars who show up on a lower budget movie and the first thing they, they complain about is the craft, craft service. But you figure there's a job where they're working almost 24 hours a day because you're serving hundreds of people with hundreds of types of flavors of diet, um, allergies, requirements, vegetarians, vegans, people that want to eat raw beef right off the cow. I mean, it's, it's, and they, it all has to be hot and ready at a certain time in volume without repeating it you know and it's like and it's hard to do and these catering companies that do this it's a really hard job they're working their asses off they're making it all from scratch and it's every day and sometimes you're doing breakfast you're doing lunch and then snacks during all during the day and you have you know slices of watermelon and orange and then you come around with the you know, the, the burritos, and then there's the hot dogs, and then the, the sit-down, and it's it's a lot of work. Finally, I asked him to tell me what else we should cover. The other thing that people don't usually see is that you have a whole uh, sub-army. I was talking before, the, the director is the general. But you've got you've got all the, the union drivers for all of the trucks. You've got all the transport drivers to drive the talent, the executives around. You have craft services. You have security. You have, I mean, it becomes a, a, a moving army that moves from neighborhood to neighborhood. I mean, in a way, it's easier to be on a set. Like when I'm, I've been doing some Star Trek stuff at Pinewood Studios, they have eight sound stages. It's all there and it's all localized, but you still have all of these people around in some way. You know, and once you go on location, then you've got to get all those trucks there. You've got to get all the dressing rooms there. You have costumes. You have uh, makeup trailers. You have, I mean, there's a lot of movement that happens and it all has to be coordinated. The thing that everybody tries to remember, and you're talking about 12 and 14 hour days, like we're talking about the PAs. The PAs are the first on the set and the last to go home. They're exhausted after a 14, 15, 16 hour day. And so we have a lot of people putting in a lot of hours trying to make deadlines, budgets. There's pressure on all levels. And the thing to remember is that it's so collaborative on all levels. And it's like when I'm working with young acting students, I say, you have to be careful of ego. Because if the driver doesn't show up to take you to the set, now we're behind schedule. 
And so now nobody can do their job because they need you now in makeup, in costume, on set. We have to rehearse. We have to start shooting. But if that driver doesn't show up, then we have to figure out how we're going to get you to the set. We're now delayed. That driver is important. If craft services doesn't have breakfast out, then you've got a lot of grumpy people who aren't don't have breakfast. You know, it's like and it's like everybody has a job and everybody's job is equally important. A PA is as equally, I mean, is important because if you don't have the PA at the end of the block to stop the traffic, then you can have people driving right through the middle of a shot that's supposed to be taking place in 1890 in a convertible Mustang. It won't make sense. <laughs> so everybody has value and you have to treat everybody in the same way. Bob, you're a treasure on so many levels. Thanks for being my friend. And folks, if you'd like to check out his work, and I recommend you do, please visit the IMDb website and search for Robert Verlack. That's V-E-R-L-A-Q-U-E. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. Thanks for dropping by, and I'll see you in the next episode.